Podcast 141. The Elder Roundtable begins here. Why the Elder? And side one. All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best? You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcasting. In every age, in every time, a hero is born, as if by some grand design. From Paramount Studios, the epic begins here. The Elder. Countless times we've met along the way. Through a dream you will come to an agent. He's just a boy. Do you take the oath? But I'm no hero. A boy goes in and suddenly a man returns. You must be worthy of the prophecy. You're gonna be attacked and you won't know what it is. Who are you? I am the truth about this problem. Why am I still so afraid? Welcome to your podcast. I'm Ken Mills, one of your hosts here today, and today I'm joined by Gary Schaller. Hello. The Council of the Elder has convened here at the big podcast elder table. It's kind of like a who's who in podcasting here today. If you are a podcast listener, this is kind of like a meeting of the podcast all-stars. What a great panel we have here today. We welcome Julian Gill from the KISS FAQ podcast. Welcome, Julian. Thanks, Ken. Good to be on. We welcome Ryan McKay from Shabby Road. Hey, I'm here in a desert where an ocean once danced by. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) And Craig Smith from the Pods and Sods Network. Thank you, Ken. Happy to be here. And we welcome the ever-effervescent BJ Cramp from the mighty Rock and or Roll podcast and Cheap Talk. Last and least. Thank you, Ken. Not the least. Actually, it was you who helped spearhead this momentous roundtable as we discuss the music from The Elder. Julian Gill, I know you've written a book recently about The Elder. Would you like to tell us the name of that book and what it's all about? Yeah, Tim McFate and myself put together a series of interviews on the FAQ website in 2012 to celebrate the elder. And when we were done with that feature, we figured there's so much here and there's still some people that we'd like to get to that we thought we'd package it up as a book. And that took a few years to come to fruition. It came out on September the 16th. It is 535 pages of everything you really never wanted to know about the elder, but you can find out the answers in the book. And I can tell, folks, it's definitely worth picking up. It's chock full of info that you will get nowhere else. It's the kind of book that you never thought you'd see. Well, I like I'll to think there's a lot of gold in there. I'll second that, Ken. It's a great book. 
And me too. It's the book that I always wanted. Thank you so much, Julian. Yeah, yeah Odyssey is amazing, and it's it joins the solo album book in on my bookshelf of of you know books that I never thought I would ever ever be able to read. You know, so it's just incredible. Well, thank you guys. We I, I know Tim and myself appreciate all the positive feedback that we've had about it and the negative. Um, you know, it's certainly nice to have people enjoying what we did put a lot of time and effort into. Julian, when I was reading it, I, I wrote to you and I was like, "What? do you know what song they were asked to do for the pirate movie? <laughs> that was my big takeaway from the yeah. book. Unfortunately, yeah, you, we don't know. <laughs> you know, the, the greatest thing about all these things that we do, the books, uh, you know, the interviews, the projects, is there's always a little bit of mystery left. There's some uh, ellipses in life, and we don't. I, I don't think we want everyone to know everything. It, it would just take the fun out of life. So, what mm-hmm. is that? So- what is that song? I mean, I listened to that soundtrack, and that was enough to put me off doing any further research into that question. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into our discussion of the elder, here's a message from the Rock and Pod Expo. Do you love it loud? Then plan to attend the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo, one-day event celebrating all things rock and roll. Over 20 rock podcasts from all over North America recording on-site. Panel discussions with producers that have worked with Ozzy, Slayer, Kiss, Y&T, Seven Dust, Dokken, and more. Celebrity signings and meet and greets with current and former members of Cinderella, Winger, Tora Tora, Collective Soul, Taiketo, The Monkees, with more to be announced. All that and record dealers slinging some sweet vinyl. The Nashville Rock and Pod Expo takes place Saturday, August 26th at the Music Valley Event Center. More information available at NashvilleRockandPodExpo.com as well as on Facebook. The Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. Feast your ears. If you're listening to this, we hope that you come out. The Podkiss, The Kiss Room, Podcast Rock City, KISS FAQ Podcast, and so many more, including Pods and Sods, Ralph and Ian from Rock and Metal Combat Podcast, Chris and Aaron from Decibel Geek. All of us are going to be there. Everyone from the Podkiss staff is going to be there. BJ from the Rock and Roll Podcast, and Courtney Cronin Dold, Christine the Button Queen, myself, and Gary Schaller will be there. Come on down and meet us. The Rock and Pod Expo. It's the place to be if you've ever wanted to hang out with the Podkiss crew. Come on down and hang out with us. We'd just like to take a second to thank two very important gentlemen who helped keep the Podkiss running. Roy Myers for building the Podkiss website and helping us out, keeping the Podkiss on track and on the air. And we'd also like to thank the one and the only Joseph Garris. Joseph, thank you so much for getting the Podcaster 2000 machine back up and running, or otherwise no one would be hearing this episode. So thank you, Joseph Garris. Thank you for being part of the team behind the scenes. We cannot thank you guys enough. Thank you. So Julian, what are your thoughts on The Elder? Going into the the history of the band at the time, I think it's the album they didn't want to make, but the best that they could make. The only way that they could make an album. And it was just a confluence of, you know, kind of negative energy coming around. The only thing that they could do in 1981 when they really, really were not in a state to make an album. I love it, you know, for what is ultimately a failure in history and something that they don't like to talk about, celebrate in any way. I I think it's an unrealized concept, something that was uh, different 
something that's fun and it's so quirky and there's so many different elements to it. Mm-hmm. BJ Cramp. Well, you know, for me, The Elder is, I have such a weird relationship with the album, you know, from my perspective, just the way, you know, when I got into Kiss, uh, you know, I know that Crazy Nights was the first new Kiss album for me, so I think I got The Elder in around 86, 87, and it was the last Kiss album I got after I had everything else, and it's so funny looking back on it, because at that point, it was five or six years old, mm-hmm. and yet... It already seemed like this mythic, lost album, lost to history. You couldn't get it. It was just like this legendary thing. And yet it was only five years old, and it was already like that then. And I just had to... What I did was I called every record store in Milwaukee. I just got the Yellow Pages out, and I just started calling record stores, asking them if they had it. And the one record store that had it was Atomic Records, which was like the indie alternative store in Milwaukee. They actually became sort of well-known later when uh, Stone Gossard wore an Atomic Records shirt on Saturday Night Live. And just in the whole, in the, in the early 90s, Atomic Records kind of became known just because of Pearl Jam and stuff. But, uh, but, you know, in the 80s, I had to get my mom to drive me there. They put it on hold for me. It was, it was a vinyl import. And it, I, this must have been, I was thinking, this must have been the first actual vinyl record I got because I didn't even have a record player at the time I got it. I had to take it to my friend's house and dub it on a cassette, and then it skipped. So the only version of The Elder I had for years to listen to had skips in it. and uh, Which tracks? Well, I know The Oath skipped quite a bit. I, I, it was brand new, too, but sometimes... I've had that experience before. Sometimes with brand new records, they, they skip. I, I guess you got to get the grooves worn in or something, but uh, I think that was the issue with it. Or and maybe it was just my you know my friend's dad's record player I don't know but uh, that's also a very rough song to have a skip in. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, I also had the same thing happen with "I Was Made for Loving You" at the repeating baseline. Yeah, right. You know, it was the same thing over and over again. I couldn't tell if it was skipping or not. <laughs> Craig Smith, your thoughts on music from the Elder? Well, I would have been eight. I remember uh, seeing the commercial on television. I remember watching the Solid Gold appearance, and I had been uh, into Kiss for a number of years at that point. So it was. Uh, all of this that, that kind of comes later about it being mythical and everything isn't really part of my story. For me, it was the new Kiss album, and and I was obsessed with it at the time. I remember drawing pictures of it in school, and I, I can't remember exactly how long it took for my parents to break down and buy it for me, but I remember where I was the first time I listened to it. I've loved it all these years, and you know, <clears throat> it's funny that BJ should mention... Uh, trying to find it around the time of Crazy Nights, let's not forget that it was not part of the initial release of CDs when uh, the Kiss catalog was released on CD in 87. Uh, the Elder and the solo albums were absent. So it wasn't really until then that the Elder kind of presented itself as the um, you know, the, the forgotten thing in the Kiss catalog. For me, it was always my favorite Kiss album and still is. Ryan McKay of the Shabby Road Podcast. Yeah, my, my story with The Elder is similar to Craig's, where for me it was the new Kiss album, and I'm assuming that I just went into my local record store, and there it was, and then pleaded with my mom to buy it for me, and I'd have been nine years old at the time. So I'm bringing a lot of nostalgia to 
to the record, you know, to this day. I mean, it still kind of takes me back to being a kid. As an adult, you look at this record as a as a mistake or or very clumsy in parts and things that just don't work. But on the whole, for me, just because of, you know I heard it when I was nine, it it uh, it works for me for some reason. You know, it, I uh, I tend to forgive the record a lot because you know just because of I was nine years old and when you're when you're that young, you know, my perception of Kiss wasn't fully formed yet. You know, I had all of the, some, the makeup stuff that from the 70s and I had some solo album stuff. I had Dynasty and Unmasked. So it was such a diverse set of records that I had. Here comes The Elder and it didn't seem odd to me at all at that age. So I was, you know, very malleable <laughs> in terms of what what I thought a Kiss album would be. So I, I don't have that sort of baggage with the elder that maybe an older fan would have had like who would completely reject the album you know i think i i uh i, I forgive it and i still like it and and uh it's it had such a profound impact on me that it's shaped my taste in music uh over the years i love the how pompous it is and and the music that i've made in, in my musical career is also you could hear traces of some of those elements of uh, some of the chords and and the structures of the songs and the the bravery of it and you know you try to reach for that and so yeah it, once we get into a song by song thing we can kind of pick apart some of the mistakes or some of the bad choices that are made but uh, on the whole I I just have a great love for the record uh, warts and all uh huh you mentioned albums that kiss fans reject craig smith is there any kiss album that you reject yeah i i think for me it would be animalize i mean it's easy to go with the later stuff as a target mm-hmm. so i'll kind of exclude that but i think i think animalize is a clunker mm-hmm. bj yeah carnival of souls as podcast <laughs> listeners probably Blast remember can someone cut yes. his mic off? <laughs> BJ, while I ask Julian Gill if there's an album that he doesn't really care for in the Kiss catalog, why don't you go run around outside of your house as punishment for that answer? <laughs> go, go sit in the corner. <laughs> so, Julian, what is the Kiss album that you're not the craziest about? Yeah, Crazy Nights. That was just a, a soul-destroying listen. Uh, you got to remember, I became a fan with Asylum, so that was a pretty rocking you know, hard rock album. And then to go and uh, get this new album, my first new Kiss album, and put it in my Walkman and play it and have that crap come on and open up the inlay, the J card for the tape and see blue thongs sticking out. It just, <laughs> it, it, it just boggles the mind. And then you've got glass shattering vocals and to be honest, not very good songs. So yeah, I rejected that. And it is odd what's once perplexed you. Now fascinate you. <laughs> Ryan McKay, which is your least favorite Kiss album? Yes, I do have one, and Craig Smith, um, you know what it is, right? I, 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 I certainly do. Yes, it is Carnival of Souls. Blasphemy. You may as well place a bucket upon your head and run in place. I know. It's, you know, um, the thing about that record is it's the style of music that I just don't care for. The grungy, uh, sludgy thing that uh, Kiss doesn't—it just doesn't fit with Kiss as well. I, I, it just doesn't suit them. 
to me. And I just don't like that style of music at all. So I, I got nothing for that record. Gary Schaller, which is your least favorite Kiss album or one that is the cream of the crap? Uh, I loved it when it came out. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And uh, I cannot bring myself to listen to Psycho Circus. I, there's, you know, the, the songwriting on some tracks, I mean, especially Jeans, I really like. I still like those songs and, and the title track I, I love. I think it's great. As a as a whole, as an album, lyrically and and just the heartbreak of of the what could have been's, um, really uh, turns me off at this point. The other one, and the the only other one that that I that I never reached for, and this is going to piss off a lot of people, is "Lick It Up." It never leapt off the grooves for me the way that like um, other records did. For example, "Creatures," its sister album. Uh huh. Oh yeah. No, creatures is one of my top five go tos. I think. But well, you are all wrong. The correct answer is, of course, hot in the shade. I deduct all points, and you all lose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but thanks you know for playing. But you know what we could do, Ken? What? Let's talk about which five songs we leave off on the shade. No, no, we're not doing that. I will firmly put my six-inch heel down and say we are not doing that. Well, that but, went somewhere better than where I thought it was going to go. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, Gary, please tell us your initial thoughts on The Elder. So I think, I think The Elder, my, my entry point to The Elder is similar to just how I got into Kiss in general, which is through comic books and movies and fantasy. Like The early 80s was such a great time to be in all of that stuff because... You know, like you, you could go to the movies and see something like Dragon Slayer, right? And then you could, you know, you could go home and read, uh, you know, like great Marvel comics. And the L, I remember the Elric books were really popular yes. at that time and Dungeons and Dragons. And just like it was a great time if you were a geeky kid who was into that stuff. And I was. That same uh, impetus for getting into Kiss initially, like seeing the comic book imagery on the unmasked cover and um, buying Gene's solo album and, and, and the fact that Gene's solo album had so, so, so many different styles of music on it. I had seen Yellow Submarine right around the same time. And so I think that that helped, that helped me you know, have a sense that you could be like a rock and roll band and not have one particular kind of music that you make. Because, I mean, if you watch Yellow Submarine, there's such a, you know, such a diverse, diversity of sounds on that um, soundtrack. And so when The Elder came around, I, I didn't buy it initially just because I wasn't, you know, like I didn't even know it came out. I saw, I saw them do I on Solid Gold and expected that song to be on Creatures. But I got The Elder about 1983 or 84. I listened to it on cassette on vacation in Boston in a hotel room. Like I must have been eight, seven or eight years old, and it just blew me away. I, I loved every minute of it. It was the... It was Kiss's answer to the kind of fantasy stuff that was all around. And I, 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 I still adore that record. I really do. Well, so like almost every Kiss album has been kind of framed by the album that came before it. And I came up in the time of Darst to Kill and Alive. So like that was like my Kiss and going through Destroyer and everything. And after Unmasked, which at the time it was kind of hard for me to deal with, you know. So hearing the energy and the hardness of the oath, by the time the elder came out, it was a very welcome thing. And by that, I mean it wasn't unmasked. I think all of us have probably seen the Netflix show Stranger Things, right? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they got so right was the rec room in everybody's house with the wood paneling and, and everything, right? The rec room. Yeah. Uh, in the middle of winter in Ohio, you were happy to get out of your driveway and then get back into someone else's driveway because other than that, you were stuck at home and, you know, you made the most of, of things. You get together with your buds, you form a band, you play cards, D&D, whatever. You know, you have fun. Make the most of things. Well, we would all get together and people would bring their favorite albums over. And I remember taking Unmasked over one time and, you know, the, the guys that were listening to Van Halen and Iron Maiden weren't having any of that. You know, Judas Priest to Unmasked, it just didn't work, right? But I remember when I put The Elder on and people heard The Oath that one got people's attention. That one was allowed to stay on while we were playing cards or D&D or whatever, or what have you. And it was, uh, it was uh, definitely much more welcome than Dynasty and Unmasked were at the time. So in between Iron Maiden and Van Halen albums, we would listen to The Elder, so I was happy. And it was kind of a return to form because coming off Unmasked, to me, Unmasked was not what Kiss should have been. I, I really appreciate it now, but... And your so, girlfriend liked it. Yes. Yeah. And I... <laughs> no, but... <laughs> no, but of all the Kiss albums that she could have liked, you know, she didn't like Alive or Dress to Kill or Rock and Roll Over, she liked Unmasked. And, you know, <laughs> you know, out of all the albums she could have liked, she liked Unmasked. It was just like, that's what you like? And BJ, quit bringing it up. You make me look like a creep. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite things about doing this podcast really one of my favorite things is hearing people's stories about uh acquiring the kiss records and and listening to them for the first time like i love like i love ken your story about like uh you know going into school and how people reacted to to uh, phantom of the park and dynasty uh bj your story of acquiring the elder you know i mean just like this is the stuff this is the nostalgia stuff that i love and and ken i'm imagining you know, you talked about like going in after Dynasty came out, and it, and how the hope was that it would be a continuation of side four of Alive Two, right? And and while the Elder is by no means uh, in the in that same ballpark as as Alive Two, you know, I wonder what it would have been like had that been the follow up. Like if you'd been able to go into school with all the kind of ridicule, with Kiss being under the microscope, so to speak, you know, and have that record be the follow up to Alive Two. I don't think it would have worked either way. Really? Yeah. I can say with The Oath, for example, Mm -hmm. I could hear Iron Maiden doing that. Don't you guys? You could hear Iron Maiden doing that, right? Yeah. 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 It's the galloping galloping rhythm there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that album was appreciated by the poker club. (laughs) And you also have to look at how we came to get our news at the time. For example, I know Craig Smith will probably back me up on the importance of 16 magazine you know right craig huge Uh, for me at the time i absolutely should have mentioned that and you know what i'm going to mention i think i do about a week before the album came out we got an unveiling in 16 magazine about kiss's new look yeah it's funny uh if there's one 16 magazine article that i can fully picture in my mind it's that one you know you have the the elder era session photos and you know unveiling kiss's new look and if i remember correctly that may have been the article that reprinted the gatefold text 
Um, if if not, it was uh, one around that time. But Sixteen Magazine quoted that entire gatefold text, and I remember that really grabbing my attention at the time and being, you know, I'm not sure what this means, but it seems a little more interesting than this album that came before that I was, con- you know, confused by with the the comic book album cover, and so Sixteen Magazine at that time was really your and look everybody that does a sort of podcast talks about you know in the days before the internet but it's it's really that's really as a kiss fan what all i had was 16 magazine and it was either that and maybe know what was coming or be surprised with a kiss record next time you go into the record store right so so yeah but the 16 magazine stuff and I wish I still had that stuff. Like when it, when it comes down to Kiss memories, the sixteen magazine articles are are like at the top of the memory bank. Plus, you get a lot of pinups of Leaf Garrett, which is a bonus. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what you can you can share them with your sister. Right. <laughs> I remember back in the day, you'd get the magazine, and it would have like, "What does David Hodo of the Village People look for in a woman?" <laughs> a penis. <laughs> Someone to do his laundry. Allegedly. Uh, allegedly, yes. <laughs> Craig, do you remember that coming out about a week before the actual album? You know, I couldn't I couldn't tell you exactly when it was. I know it was before because I remember that it was one of the one of the factors that led up to me really kind of obsessing on it before I even owned it. But uh, to be honest, like that whole time is is a blur. But I remember I remember everything that led up to me finally having it in my hands and getting it home. But I, I don't I don't know a timeline, but I, it, it had to be close. We had this place uptown called the newsroom. And by uptown, I don't mean the, the Prince song. And so it was called the News Depot. And you would get all your magazines and various sundries and stuff. And it was, there was a guy who who worked the counter and owned the store. And he would always, like, pull certain things for me. But it got to be a little bit uncomfortable for an 18-year-old boy to be buying 16 Magazine at some point. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, Ken? You weren't a Debbie Gibson fan. I had to go buy and bop when I was, like, 15. So it could have been worse. Yeah, the struggle is real. Teen beat, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) So we've heard, BJ, how you got the album. Julian Gill, how did you get the album? Again, with being a fan in 85, becoming a fan in 1985, I couldn't find it. Uh, I was living in upstate New York at the time, and wherever I went, I did the same thing. Went through the phone book, called record stores. Do you have it? Do you have it? And there was one other big Kiss fan in town. And whenever I'd call a record store, they'd always say, well, we had a copy of the Award Without Heroes single last week, but so-and-so came in and got it already. And, you know, it always seemed to go like that. So I eventually had to do a mail order. I think it was from the back of a circus magazine. And I got the Oath uh, Japanese single. And that was like the the first way I got it. Later on, I think at 10th grade, um, a guy in my math class had it. And I traded him 5150 and Def Leppard's On Through the Night for a beat-up cassette copy. What I didn't know then was uh, that... In 85, when all those uh, cassettes came out again, the uh, the reissues, that The Elder had actually been a part of those. And, you know, I hadn't seen it anywhere um, when it came out. So, you know, I finally got it. It cost me a crappy Van Halen album and a good Def Leppard album. But uh, 
Hmm. It was worth it. It was, it was like harps and violins and the angels were singing as I walked towards my tape deck with that beat up cigarette stained cassette and gently put it in. And then it was like, ah, it was, yeah, it wonderful. Was, it was almost like Odyssey was playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> You know, finally, I, my quest has been completed. I've got a copy of this album. I've searched high and low. It's been a challenge. And, yeah, I loved it. Ryan McKay. How I got the record? Yeah, it was my, I'm sure my mom got it. It's funny, I don't recall hearing about a new Kiss album coming out, but it, my mom must have just gone to the record store and saw it in the racks and you know at that point every time I went to the record store which was quite frequently because it was in our mall and of course it's the 80s so you're always hanging out at the mall you know mom would go looking for clothes and I'm, I'm going to be down at uh, Musicland which is a Sam Goody kind of store and uh, so I'd go always go to the K section first you know and I, I knew exactly what was in that rack you know every few weeks we'd be at the mall so I'd be in the K section looking for looking through all the the different records and so when i see something new in there i'm like oh what's this this is a new kiss album i don't know what this is music from the elder is it a movie what is this it was so mysterious you know and I, of course because it has kiss's name on it i had to talk my mom into getting it and uh took it home and unwrapped it i had the cassette actually and popped it in and immediately loved it it was so heavy by then i was in into uh acdc and uh, I don't know if I was quite into Ozzy Osbourne yet, but I know I was listening to heavier music and certainly was familiar with Destroyer and Kiss Alive 2 and the heaviness that that record is. I, I dug how heavy it, it was. There was something about it. It was dark and, and heavy, you know, so that's it's always been a favorite of mine because of that. You know, it just blew you away. It's really one of those times where the record company got it right in a way, you know, to put, you know, to rearrange the song order. Yeah, but the oath first, it, you know, it's like you really uh, needed that. I think you know. By the way, I just had a Ken Mills theory. I call it a Ken Mills theory because um, Ken, I've loved like the the the, the thematic ideas that you've come up with. You know, like uh, like like when we were talking about Destroyer and the idea that um, you know, that like the the main character dies and you hear the sirens wailing and the rest of it is like a dream he's having. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then it made sense to have it at the very end. Yeah, that's right. So my 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 uh, my Ken Mills theory about the Elder is it's actually a concept album about people buying the Elder, <laughs> right? Wow. Like, cause, cause, right? Cause, um, you know, all the all the trials and tribulations of getting this record. I'm just thinking about like uh, how hard it was to acquire, and you know, like especially Julian, your story, like you know, you're as you're putting the record, you know, the the, the tape in there, and Odyssey is playing in the background. You know, it's great. Yeah, Mr. Blackwell is like the jaded guy at the record store counter. It's like oh, you're buying this shit. Your old news. Or he's that heroes. other guy in upstate New York who keeps scooping the Kiss records before you could get them, right? <laughs> and a world without heroes when you find out that the album is sold out and it's oh, not there. Right. Know? Yeah. And then, like Gene, you have a tear in your eye as you're crying. And then you manage to shoplift it, and then it's escape from the island. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Craig Smith, tell us your purchase history. I'm sure, like, uh, you guys that uh, grew up on Kiss, you can pretty much remember where you saw each one for the first time and probably where you bought one each one for the first time. Um, I remember seeing it in the store. 
Um, and then started my period of obsession, and I'm fairly certain that it was <laughs> started his period. Yeah, I had the same <laughs> reaction. <right? laughs> uh, Thanks. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't remember purchasing it. I'm fairly certain that it was maybe something that I was surprised with one day. My parents may have been out, and or my mom specifically, and um, after maybe days of me um, being pretty out of control about it just decided to shut me up and bought it uh so uh i i i'm fairly certain that it was gifted to me and it was probably waiting for me uh at some point or given to me during the weekend and then i popped it on the turntable i remember being transfixed right from the beginning and the beginning of uh mr blackwell scaring the hell out of me really that scared you We've we've been through all this. Yes, we, yes we've yes. been through how uh, Gene Simmons affected my life in a negative way. Very good, very good. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it scared the hell out of him. <laughs> you know, we really need to dedicate this episode to our moms and dads and aunts and uncles and anyone who took us to malls and stores where we threw ourselves on the floor begging for Kiss albums. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. For me, it's that. My mom knew that I was such a big nut for Kiss, you know, and so it wasn't like every week I was asking her to buy me a cassette tape of something, you know. It was like, Mom, there's a new Kiss album, and she knew that there was a lot of gravity in that <laughs> statement. Yeah, so. yeah, my mom had to drive me through some pretty sketchy neighborhoods to get to Atomic Records in Milwaukee. In the 80s, there was some, you know, Milwaukee had its issues, and uh, like Gary pointed out, it was an odyssey <laughs> to go get the record. <laughs> I still remember forcing my mom to drive there, and she's like, where are we going? Where is this place? How far is it, you know? And it's getting dark, and it's getting dark all the time. <laughs> See, that, that, that's a bit of a painful thought for me, because uh, I would say that maybe up until this time, half of my Kiss album collection was given to me by a cousin who um, was feeling dejected after Dynasty, and I ended up inheriting those. And the rest of them my dad would get at flea markets when he oh, yes. saw them for a quarter, but only a quarter. And it didn't matter if it was like alive or alive two at 50 cents, he would not spend more than a quarter <laughs> to get a kiss album. And I remember specifically <laughs> crying because he told me he saw alive two and it was 50 cents and I'm not paying that for that shit. Um, wow. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's another memory that this kind of jog the Sunday mornings kind of, my dad was a big flea market guy and, you know, just occasionally, you know, there'd be a, a destroyer there, you know, when he comes home or something. And they were and that's, you know, how maybe some of us ended up getting our Kiss albums, uh, our collections built up through means like that. Like, I certainly didn't have at my age at being eight. It wasn't like I was going to get the whole discography, you know on vinyl from my parents. So it was like you kind of get them handed down or you buy them secondhand. So when time travel does become possible, are you going to go back in time and find your father and give him like $500 and say, you don't know me in this form, but I'm your son from the future. Please go get your son every Kiss album. Here you go. Either that or I would convince uh, younger Craig not to get into Kiss at all so he wouldn't have had to see some of the embarrassments that have happened in the, the later years. <laughs> do you want to tell people about Heck? <laughs> you know, just a little. Oh, do I have to? Just um, 
I, I as a as a child who was parent fearing and maybe a little bit on the the sissy side of things, um, I, I one of the albums, one of the first albums I got was a copy of the originals from my cousin, um, and as a six or seven year old child, I crossed out every instance of the word hell and wrote heck. <laughs> All over the originals, all over my Hotter Than Hell when I got it, on my double platinum. So I ruined a good many Kiss albums. And I'm that guy you curse when you see like that kind of thing on eBay. That was me as a kid. Like, hey, there's that valuable record. Boy, did he fuck it up. And it continues to this day with Monsters Heck or Heckaluya. <laughs> That's right, uh, uh, Hecker heck, heck High <laughs> So when we talk about music from The Elder, are we talking about the original track listing or the new 97 remastered listing? Or the original intended track sequence or the adjusted track sequence or, you know, there, there are so many different actual versions of what The Elder is. You know, it probably makes sense just to talk about the 97 one. Does that sound fair, gang? Sure. Sure, sure. I will say that there's nothing quite like dropping the needle and hearing the oath. Yeah. Anyway, so this album kicks off with fanfare. So imagine going from Detroit Rock City opening up an album to this. <laughs> Paul Stanley and Bob Ezrin. It's an instrumental, and not many Kiss albums start out with an instrumental. Ryan McKay, please set the stage. Well, it's very pretentious, of course, uh, but it's not a bad piece of music. Uh, the the instrumentation there, you know, with uh, the, what they're what they're using, it's kind of got this. Uh, reminds me of some of the instrumentation that Roy Wood and ELO used on the first Electric Light Orchestra album, and some of that later move period stuff of course i guess I, I should probably flip that around and go when i came around to hearing the elo stuff i go that oh, sounds like the elder <laughs> but uh <laughs> but it's it you know and then the building up and the crescendo whole bit you know makes me feel like i just popped in a dvd of superman 2 but yeah it's it's good it, you know it is what it is sets the mood craig smith yeah um pretty much what ryan said i think the interesting thing about this is placement I, I think that you can argue, and I would probably agree, that the, the ramp-up for the intended track sequence, where it takes a while to really get going, it isn't preferred. But, but I do like this as an opening track. I think that on the, uh, the U.S., where you go the oath into this, into Just a Boy, is, is kind of odd. I, I think that I would have preferred this up front still. 
and then maybe just busting into the oath. Um, but I, I like it as an opening piece of music. I think that it's fitting and and um, and works. And now to our good friend Brian Cramp. Well, yeah, the oath is a great opening song, of course, but. This is supposed to be a concept album, so a concept album is going to have a very fixed sequence of songs since they're supposed to be telling a story. Of course, we know there's not much of a story here, so that's why even when the record company messed with the track listing, it didn't really matter. But, you know, when you break it down, obviously, if it's a concept album, the songs are going to need to be in the right order, you would think. So... When the record company just switched the order of the songs of a concept album, I always thought that was pretty hilarious. That uh, because you know, then as soon as they do that, the whole idea of a concept album is out the window, isn't it? Pretty much. I mean, I was thinking Kiss had had Iron Maiden opening for them for what like three months on the Unmasked tour in Europe, and they were they were seeing this young band on fire, you know, Iron Maiden right at the beginning, and they didn't see that that's where things were going, I guess. And so, do you think they thought a concept album produced by Bob Ezrin, because of The Wall, this is a sure thing. This is going to be yes. huge. doesn't even matter what we do. So th- so they instead of seeing that Iron Maiden were the future, they go with this idea of concept album, Bob Ezrin, slam dunk. And so they open the record. This is as far from Iron Maiden as you could possibly get fanfare, right? Yeah. It's just a short intro, so I don't have any problem with it. But obviously, in retrospect, as soon as, if this is going to open the new Kiss album, you know this is very misguided and and ill-conceived in retrospect. But you know, it's just a short intro, and for the kind of record this turns out to be, you know, it works in context. But obviously, a Kiss fan who maybe were hoping that Kiss were going to pick up on, because a lot of bands were already, a lot of classic bands were already picking up on the new wave of British heavy metal and getting heavier, and Kiss were kind of late to the party with Creatures of the Night, really. So, obviously, a Kiss fan putting this record on, if this had been the beginning, which I guess the record company wisely, you know, put the oath at the beginning instead, but, you know, this would have been a real shock to the system as the beginning of the record, but it really didn't turn out to be... I mean, when this came out, it ne- was there any re- any version of The Elder that came out at the time where this was the beginning, Julian? Yeah, Japan. Or was, Japan. Yeah, so, and okay. Portugal, I believe. Okay. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you have to imagine a KISS fan who maybe are hoping, you know, this isn't going to be Unmasked 2, and then they drop the needle and they hear this and they they might have just turned the record off. You know? <laughs> it's not it's not on last two. It's much much worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, can I interject for a second? Sure. Um, just while I'm thinking of this, when was the first time that you guys uh, realized or or found out that the track listing on the back that we thought was out of order was actually intended and that it was released that way in Japan? I remember finding that out and buying a Japanese or my friend bought a Japanese copy through Goldmine. And we were blown away because we probably it had to have been mid nineties before we even knew this. Like, when did you guys find that out? Wait, did it have the chanting on it? Is that it did? That, it did. It did. Okay. Yes. Huh. I think I found it out in the nineties. I, almost ashamed to say, it may have even been when uh, you know the Rob Conti uh, reissues came out. Really? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, like when we, I, I remember getting the vinyl and we got it to his place and listened to it. And when the chanting came up, we were like, what the hell is this? Yeah. <laughs> I was so happy that it ended up coming out on CD because at that time it was just like, that's, that's all we had as a, as a, I think, I think it might have been even when, when I got online in 96, one of the sites uh, had it somewhere. And we were like, this can't be true. So we just kind of gambled, and it was expensive, and it ended up being true. Yeah. You know, I just. Well, you know, little... obviously, when they restored the track listing for the reissue, it, it's too bad they didn't just put the whole, all of the dialogue and everything that was the original listening party or whatever version. It's mm-hmm. too bad they just didn't restore the whole thing, you know? And of course, it comes with a side of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think we'll ever hear that dialogue, or do you think it's gone forever? We can only dream that someday there will be a music from the Elder Deluxe Edition, because that's probably the only place it'll happen is in our dreams. I, I guess that, it's possible, yeah. I seriously hope that I have to eat those words, because I would love for them to announce a Deluxe Elder Edition. I would gladly eat those words. Please bring it on. Julian, I... that must still exist in the vault, right? Like the actual original intended thing? It's it's a possibility, whether it's at Universal, whether it ever made it there, whether it's in Bob's vault, um, yeah, you know, right. wh- whether whether it was stolen, you know, it, it's just unknown. And, you know, there's just no way of knowing exactly what dialogue was recorded. I've got the actual dialogue script that the actors did use, so I, I know what was on paper for them to read from and i know what was used on the on the recording that we do have and then what is edited out obviously but whether it was you know ever sequenced in in any way i don't know um and i don't think we'll ever get a definitive answer for that unfortunately unless someone like john hart who um you know is suggested to have had an alternate version of the album with all the dialogue you know, is able to go back and reference that and really detail it out for us. Well, when, you know, when they had when they had the famous listening party, wasn't all the dialogue there at that point? Apparently, it was. And right. uh, but again, you know, enough of the people who attended that party, who we interviewed for the book, were unable to be specific enough about it for us to actually draw any concrete conclusions to say most assuredly, yes, this is what's missing. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's still kind of misty. You know. Yeah. Mm. We talk about like missed opportunities or kissed opportunities, right? And, and I think the the fact that Kiss are so humorless about their you know their past missteps um, really leads to some missed opportunities. For instance, you know everybody I think would agree that a commentary like a Kiss Meets the Phantom Blu-ray release with a commentary track featuring the original members of Kiss would be amazing. Yeah. Oh um, God. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Just if they could if they could put aside the you know the like the hurt egos and whatever else go into like you know making a mistake or the shame and just um and just own that it's like a, a funny beloved wonderful thing that we enjoy and and just laugh about it like ace has a good sense of humor about all of this and i think the same thing is true of the elder if they could put aside whatever crap you know like the fact that there's i don't know they're still like paying penance for it or something um you know, get you know, get Ace in there, get Bob Ezrin in there, and put out a, a thing where they go, look, this is the stupidest, most ridiculous album, and people love it, and we're just going to own it. Um, we would we would finally get to enjoy all these things we're talking about. I, I think I think what it comes down to is like you you have the comments, and they're you know kind of tongue in cheek, 
But when Paul has teased or played something from the Elder, he'll say something like, everybody that bought this record is here in this room. Like, I don't think that they would ever seriously consider any sort of deluxe that has to do with this. It's a shame, but if they're looking at something that would be a potential seller, I, I don't think that the Elder would be anywhere but the bottom of that list. Yeah, but you know what critics like, though? Critics like when bands they dislike are self-effacing. So, you know, True. even, right, even though, like, I think harnessing that, like, because, almost like because critics dislike Kiss, because concept albums are, are farcical at best, uh, if you, if, if they were funny about it, like, if they owned how ridiculous it was, you, you could almost write the, the, the Rolling Stone review right here, you know, just the kind yeah. of, like, you know that they could make it into kitsch or camp, and people would be curious about it who, who maybe otherwise don't care about that band. Our next track, Just a Boy. Uh, hey, wait, 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 wait. I want to talk about Fanfare. Oh, okay. So here's the thing about Fanfare for, for me. We know it was recorded at Ace's place because you got a train going through the background that you can hear. We know they rented the chimes and all that crap. This may be the one place that we've got an identity on a extra Kiss player on the album. And there was a band called Ars Nova that was known for using medieval instrumentation. And we think that one of the guys in that band, John Pearson, was the guy who performed the Crumhorn, which is that kind of fluty type uh, woodwind on this song. I think it sets the tone for the album perfectly. You know, they're trying to be mystic and mysterious, and you've got this uh, very odd assemblage of a kind of an audio intro to the album. But that being said, it's actually really the same play out of the same playbook as Destroyer and that intro. The, you know, it's setting the scene for the rest of the album. So right from the get-go, that's what it sets up for me that the band are doing, that they're doing more than a concept album, that they're basically doing Destroyer over again. Yeah, it, it, it has more in common with Destroyer than it does with the with the wall, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? I mean, when you think of the wall, like what was, like, you know, Kiss wanted to maybe fashion a, a, a Pink Floyd The Wall uh, record of their own, but like, what was the big hit off of that? It was a disco song, right? And and the, and the musical stylings on the wall certainly had zero to do with arty farty swords and sorcery stuff. Very true. Well, fanfare lasted one minute and twenty two seconds, and we've all talked longer than that. So, actual <laughs> <laughs> track. <laughs> Our next track, just a boy. Oh! 
DJ, what are your thoughts? Well, I actually talked about this song on the No Respect episode, which Ryan was also on. But I mean, I, I like I said on that episode, Paul was trying to write a certain kind of song, not a Kiss song necessarily, but I think for the kind of song he was trying to write, he did an incredible job. I think it's got a great melody, and I've always loved it as a song, and not just looking at it as this is a Kiss song, it has to be a certain thing, just looking at it as a song on its own, I think it's great. I love it. So, Craig Smith. I agree. I think it's a great song. I've always loved it. Uh, the demos are great to hear. Uh, it, it does make me think of one thing, though. How much do you think that the criticism of this album is due to Paul's falsetto vocals, which appear here and elsewhere? Like, if, if they weren't there, do you think that this album would have been as ill-received as it was? Well, that's a very interesting question. You have to take a look at what was going on with other singers, right? Just imagine Freddie Mercury singing this. He'd be having fun with it as well, you know? It's no big deal to me, but every once in a while I'd find somebody that didn't like Kiss because of Paul Stanley's voice. <clears throat> Which always kind of freaked me out, because if you're a Kiss fan, chances are you really like Paul Stanley's voice, right? <laughs> I personally love the chances that Paul takes on this album. I, I love yeah, as, as do I. It was yeah. never a deterrent for me. Yeah. Was it a deterrent to anyone in this room? No. 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 I, was like, no. I, I was too little. You know, I was just like, cool. You, sounds great. You know. But I did always have that theory that I agree that I think one of the barriers to Kiss being even more of a mainstream success, especially in the 80s when they tried to, you know, piggyback with a lot of what was popular, I think, yeah, Paul's voice is kind of different and maybe just didn't, you know, wasn't as mainstream accessible or something like that I, you know I never had a problem with it but I always did have that theory that maybe that was part of it but like, he, I always think that that's the, the thing that Paul goes for when he like mocked it during the kiss conventions or yeah. or anything like he'd mock the falsetto yeah like, and I think that that's I think for him I mean he said as much that it was something he wasn't comfortable with and probably shouldn't have done but I mean like when you have the US version and it opens with the oath it's kick-ass, but then he launches into that falsetto, and we'll get there. But, I mean, that's mm -hmm. it's something you encounter pretty much right off the bat, and I wonder if that was kind of uh, you know the point where a lot of people were like, yeah, okay, I'm done with this. <laughs> On the other hand, we had just come off the Bee Gees, and if you want to talk falsettos, there's your falsettos right there. <laughs> Boy, all that over is the true. <laughs> so, uh, Ryan McKay, your thoughts on Just a Boy? Yeah, um, the one thing I'll mention about this song, because I agree with everything that's been said already, the guitar work on this album is phenomenal. And the first guitar solo in Just a Boy is example number number one of uh, there's some great lead playing. And I believe it's Paul Stanley for the most part. Is that correct, Julian? Wait, what was the question? If lead Paul Stanley's playing the lead guitar, the yes. pr primarily the lead guitar on this album, and probably this song, Just a Boy, has a great guitar solo in it. It's just so great. Yeah, it's a killer it. guitar solo. Love it. This this one, unfortunately, is one of the mystery songs on the solo. I want to believe it's Paul. And, you know, that would have been a great question for someone to ask of the Kiss Cruise. Paul, do you play the solo on Just a Boy? I mean, it's a real quick and easy one. But there is a suggestion that there's a ghost here. And we don't we don't have a name, or we did have a name, but uh, weren't able to get an answer. So, um, you know, it, it's one of those ones. I hope it is because it's just absolutely exquisite. Yeah. yeah. 
Now vocally we talk about the falsettos, but on this he kind of almost goes Elvis on us. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a couple times where he kind of goes Elvis on us with like a, I don't need no money. You know, like, <laughs> I don't need Priscilla. no money. <laughs> Priscilla, give me my pills. I think I'm having a spell. Yeah. <laughs> And now and then a mystery. <laughs> Once upon a jet. Once upon a jet. Once upon a day. Helpless <laughs> times we've met. Met along the way. Uh, anyhow, so... This is just an excellent, excellent track, and for all the chuff that Paul Stanley himself gives it, I love it, and I always will. Gary Schaller, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, it's a great song. I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. The guitar solo is gorgeous. It's, um, you can almost hear... Yeah, this is where I think Ezrin does his thing. I, I, I can imagine him having something to do with the, the harmony lead at the end, like the sort of the... You know, like yeah. that's a very... Uh, it's a very Pink Floyd thing, right? It reminds me almost of like animals. Um, yep. And it, it, like gorgeous tone, right? You know, like really beautiful, beautiful sound. And never had a problem with Paul's vocals on that. I think they're exquisite. Bob Ezrin seems to be able to pull this sound out of guitar players where they sound like bells. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's parts of that solo where you almost swear it's someone gonging a bell or something, but it's not. Maybe he's doing that thing that he does with a guitar where he like has the electric guitar play a note and then an acoustic guitar underneath it, you know, to like create that sound. And he also, he also one of his tricks is, is to put a piano yes. underneath the guitar, yes. which yeah. does change the character and the tone, and it's sometimes hard to detect. So, yeah. you know, who knows what he did, but it's, it is magical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Track three, The Odyssey.
Smith, your thoughts? For many, many years, my favorite track on this album. I think um, it, it's got the most affected Paul vocal, uh, which I think maybe is down to trying to emulate the, the Tony Powers vocal from his version. I love this song. I, I love the pomposity of it. I, I love the orchestral arrangement. The guitar solo on this is great. My only beef with it on this version of the album is, for me, growing up on this, this was always kind of the climax of the record, and then I kind of like the closing credits, if you will. So to hear it so early in the album is really, really strange to me. But I love this song. Absolutely love this song. Always have. Uh, going off what you said, Craig, I actually enjoy the original U.S. track list. Yeah. To me, that's the way the story makes sense because that's how I originally wrote it when listening to the U.S. pressing, right? Mm-hmm. And, me too. Right. And right. With, with any concept album, you're the other part of that. You're the other part of the concept. You're you're writing this thing as it comes along. It's It's almost similar to... Uh, when people will read a book and then there's a movie made of it and people go, well, that's that's not what the guy looked like in my head and this scene didn't seem right and all that stuff. Uh, this album really lives in, in, in our brains. This, this album lives in our experience and what it is to us, we've built over time. And to me, the original track listing is my elder still to this day. And I, I have both of them, you know, but uh, it's it's just the one that makes the most sense to me. So, yeah, for yeah, me, like the journey through side A and then halfway through side B, you hear those opening suspended chords of Odyssey. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah, this is this is what this album's been leading to. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. To me, it's the it's. Um, I mean, that song is like the celebration. No, it's not the celebration. It's like the reflection. Like the the protagonist, you know, has had this whole, whole adventure. And is back to safety, or you know, reflecting on all that he's learned and everything. Like and then comes the celebration, this, right? Is right. That? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, the, the, yeah. Then I is the celebration at the end, which is I, I realize I've just said the worst sentences any human being has ever said. Like, like, like that. Like, if there's a spe- there's a special place in hell for people who are analyzing the story of the elder, <laughs> <laughs> or a place in heaven. There you go. Yeah, but to me, Odyssey in the original track listing is more of a journey. It, it tells more of a of of the story where you start out as just a boy, and you transcend to this moment in time. And now we escape from the island. And now he truly believes in himself and yeah. can back it up. Ryan McKay, your thoughts on Odyssey? It's a great name for a book. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, I echo what uh, Craig Smith was saying. Oh, the grandeur of the end and uh, the outro. Um, love how the orchestra kicks it up a notch and it's you know punctuated with electric guitars sort of doubling some of the lower string parts and stuff. It's just so great. And so and the song is, is really well written. You can say what you want stylistically about uh, what the song is, you know, but the, the chords and the melody and all that stuff is just so inventive and interesting. 
uh, and very, very melodic. It's just a great, great song. Julian Gill. I think Odyssey is really illustrative about just the amount of attention to detail that this album was recorded with. It is just musically stunning. And I think Paul is so unfair on himself. He has called his vocal performance on this song tragic. And I, I, I'm just offended by that, really, because he puts himself out singing in a variety of different styles on this album, so different from that which he'd been doing for the previous eight years, that while it wasn't a commercial success, I think artistically this song sums up what a success the experiment failed or not was that you know he he kills it you know it it's just a, a broadly stunning performance again completely different to the falsetto used on just a boy but the declaration and where the song fits into the original story you know it, it's perfection if this album is a train wreck it's one of the most glorious train wrecks of all time yeah <laughs> nicely said i agree a very carefully crafted train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> Brian Cramp, your thoughts? Yeah, like Ryan said, it's it's great songwriting. Um, that's what it comes down to. Like I said about Just the Boy, too. I mean, I, I think if you look at these two songs, whether or not they sound like what Kiss was supposed to sound like to whoever or whatever, just as songs, this is excellent, excellent songwriting. Both of these songs. And great melodies and just and very well done in the studio. You know, it doesn't sound like what somebody might have been expecting as a Kiss album, but for what they are, they're very, very well done. You know, great. So, Gary Schaller. Yeah, there's this whole school of uh, early '80s songwriting, like late '70s, early '80s songwriting that I that I really have grown fond of, like Joe Jackson stepping out, and I, and and like Tony Powers' Odyssey, I think belongs to in a way that school of songwriting, like when the 80s was still trying to figure itself out. And I almost imagine like dudes in corduroy jackets with the patches on the elbows kind of thing, like just kind of songwriting for songwriting's sake. Men at Work is another band like that where they just, it was all about just like writing great songs. And I think Odyssey is a great song. Um, as, as people here have mentioned, like wonderful chord progressions, like inter- interesting uh, lyrical and melodic choices. And I think they do it justice. They do, I think they do a very good job with this song. I think it, I, I agree that it makes more sense to me later in the album. As a track three, it's super weird. Yeah. yeah. To, to me. To me. Very you know? much so. Yeah. But gorgeous. But you, really well done. You also raise an interesting point that, you know, who is Tony Powers? I mean, he was a songwriter, songwriter. You know, yeah. working in the Brill building and writing hits in the 60s and the people that he was writing with. He's a writer. So, yeah. you know, that really comes through on this. That's not, Julian, I, I, I think I had forgotten or didn't know that he was Brill Building. Well, wow. he, he, he worked for Trio Music, uh, which right. is, and I'm on Wiki right now just for that fact, but, you know, writing with all the, the Lieber and the Stolers and the Ellie Greenwich and all wow. those. Wow. So, okay. you, you know, pretty, pretty serious people. Right, but I but I have to say, Gary said there's a special place in hell for people talking about the story of the elder. But I always thought the idea that you could just take a song written by someone else that has nothing to do with any story or concept and just plug it into your concept album is not showing a lot of respect for the idea of a concept album <laughs> or telling a story. <laughs> but this works. These two songs, this one and A World Without Heroes, mean the most to me, lyrically. Yeah, yeah so. I just look yeah. at the lyrics on this song. I mean, 
goodness me, it, it's you can just pick any line really. Does it remind anyone else of uh, again to bring up Yellow Submarine, right? Uh, once upon a time, or maybe twice. Like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Gary In fact, Ballard. if you play Odyssey over the first five minutes of Yellow <laughs> Submarine, it sinks up. <laughs> I am absolutely going to try that. Craig Smith, your thoughts on Only You? Uh, Only You is is another one that I've always loved. I I, I like where the album is going towards the uh, the end of side A. Uh, interesting song, but I'll, I'll I'll leave it to you guys to uh, to talk about. I have more to say about the next one. Okay, Brian Cramp. I think it's a great song, uh, great arrangement, lots of cool changes. You know, whether or not the elder was like a misguided wrong move in their career, whatever. I still think that creatively and everything they tried really hard. It's very inspired. They they did a lot of great work. They put a lot of effort into it a lot of thought i think so whether or not it was it wasn't a wise choice career-wise or the timing of it you know they they did a really good job and they put a lot into it and this is a really well written well thought out song and obviously a lot of work went into it and it's really well done and it's yeah i like it a lot ryan mckay your thoughts one of the highlights of the record for me um, no doubt. There's, uh, like BJ said, there's a lot of great parts. It's it's organized very well. If you look look at it on the whole, you and count up how many different changes there are in the song, uh, and and pretty big changes at that. So and, and they make it work. There's also what makes it uh, strong is that uh, it doesn't have some of this baggage that the elder carries with it throughout the record. And I'm referring to some of the off-putting production choices that Ezrin does, uh, Paul's falsetto. Um, we'll get to Ace's Brooklyn accent on Dark Light. You know, these kind of goofy <laughs> little things that happen in The Elder that that's why we love it, but it is if someone hearing it for the first time could be uh, put off by. Only You is like a great place to take a person that's never heard The Elder and play them Only You and then tell them, this is start here with this record and, and kind of maybe it would draw them in. Rather than hearing fanfare first, you know, maybe pulling this song, taking away the concept and all of that, but just like from a musical standpoint, the song rocks. It's Gene Simmons singing it, and then it gets more Kiss-like, especially with that open string uh, guitar riff, you know, and everything. So, uh, yeah, definitely a highlight. Julian Gill, your thoughts? You know, everything I said about Just a Boy and the, you know, exquisite nature of that performance the same can be said for Gene on Only You. It really is a, a stunning song. And I mean, bits of it date from, what is it, you know, pre-Kiss, I think, um, were recycled for it. So, you know, it, it's really, I guess, showing that other side of Gene Simmons that we only get a peek of throughout the rest of their career. Um, See You Tonight comes to mind immediately, you know, in that vein. You know, it's it's the positivity of that song. You know, it's it and the underlying message that really makes it special. Even you know, to this day, it resonates. Is it the only Kiss song with a vocoder? No, no, no. Really? I'm trying to think. Yeah, I'm trying. Um, you're talking about the like, tell me the secret. Yeah, I could. Yeah. I couldn't immediately think of anything else. Uh... Well, I mean, like, the, I got. I guess God of Thunder kind of use is, would that be a vocoder when you get that low kind of harmonized I vocal i don't 
think so, because not a, or like you know in a live version. Um, yeah, that, that would just be like a harmonizer, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I I don't know. I'm I'm open to being wrong about it, but I can't I I can't think of any other examples of that. That's great. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm pretty sure I can recall an engineer talking about using Vagoda with another track, but you know what? Fifty fifty. I, I may be completely thinking about something else, so I can't think of one off the top of my head. So. Yeah. Only you is the best of times of the Kiss catalog. Ooh! Wow! Like I, I mean that as a compliment. I'm a yeah, fan. yeah for the win. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Great vocoder songs. Wow! <laughs> Gary Schaller. Ah, oh, I, I, boy, this may be my favorite on the record. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, it, people familiar with this podcast know what a huge Gene fan I am, and. Um, for me, his songwriting—not that—not that, not that uh, the other songwriting on this record is is subpar for me, but these are the standout moments for me. Is when is when you get a Gene song, and uh, he brings in all of his element, uh, his influences. Um, Eric Carr, I think, is just incredible on this song as well. The things that he does the uh, with a like a hi hat, uh, especially, I really love. Uh, gorgeous and and fun to play on guitar. Those opening chords yeah. are really interesting. They get your they get your fingers all uh, twisted up like a pretzel, and it's nice. It's a it's a really good song. The elder, great vocals, absolutely, and tremendous vocals by Gene Simmons. Lyrics written by Gene Simmons. Kiss is often underrated, and this track is one of those examples. Like Ryan McKay said earlier, if you set someone down and said, "Hey, listen to this." This song was even sampled for a rap song. I think it was... Tupac. Thank you, Julian. It just shows the power of the tune that it was able to live as a sample on a Tupac Shakur album. I think musically it's just stunning, and what a fantastic uh, instrumental and vocal job. Just, just great. And the first appearance of The Demon on the album. Our next track, Under the Rose, written by Gene Simmons and Mr. Eric Carr.
Brian Cramp, your thoughts on Under the Rose? I think it's great. I think it's it's something that could have been a disaster, but I think it doesn't feel forced. I think that's one of the things you that you might be worried about coming at, oh, Kiss made a concept album, nobody likes it. You might think it might just be forced and they're they're trying to do something, but it doesn't work. But, you know, this song, it's weird and it's strange, but it's to me it's really inspired and really well done and really cool and it really... It works somehow. It works, mm-hmm. even though on the on paper maybe it wouldn't seem like it would work. But yeah, I think it's great. I love it. The voice that's on the album at the at the very end of the album. He's got the light in his eyes. Look, look, Robert Richie. Christie. I really swear that sometimes I hear his voice in this song when Will they do you like the sacrifice. Yeah, in the big chanting monk thing, you know, the the, the big grand chorus. To me, I, I swear I almost hear his voice in that. Craig He's Smith. part of the St. Robert's Choir. Yeah, he might be. <laughs> Craig Smith, your thoughts on Under the Rose? Uh, uh, highlight of this record. I love this. Just even from the just that three-note opening motif, just kind of setting it off. The chorus is majestic and overwhelming, but to me, the highlight of this song is that double-track guitar solo. Mm-hmm. Absolute perfection. And as years went on, maybe the defining moment on this album for me. I think that that is just pure listening bliss and incredibly executed. And as you listen, it, it almost sounds like it's out of sync and out of time. Yeah. Yeah. Almost reminds you that you never should have done acid. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan McKay, your thoughts on Under the Rose? Yeah, that guitar solo. Woo-wee. Is that great? Um, it, I guess it would be an example of odd production choices uh, on the record that I mentioned before on Only You. That that big gang chorus, it's, uh, it, I like it, it's cool, you know, but I imagine some listeners are, are put off by that. I'm, I know, for example, my wife was when she, when I first played her, the, the elder. <laughs> She's like, what is this? And yet you're still married? Yes. Yeah. We, you know, it's a two-way street, you know. You gotta give a little and... <laughs> I guess she didn't, she didn't take the oath. <laughs> <laughs> but she sacrificed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Living with me is kind of a sacrifice. Yeah. The yellow sundress. But yeah, one of my favorites on the on the record for sure. I just love that verse section and the chorus is great too. You know, um, the the gang vocals be damned. They're still cool. It's it ties into the the concept. You know, it's it this council that's. Uh, very Jesus Christ superstar kind of thing, you know. It, it kind of all works for me. So I, I, I love this. Uh, again, another highlight of the record for me. You had to say that, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I want to. I just. I want to go on a tangent for a moment. Jesus Christ superstar, and we only found about this um, after the book came out. We've been looking into Saint Robert's Choir and where that came from, and Bob had been, you know, unable to recall. Uh, the details about it. We found a letter from St. Robert's School in Toronto giving him permission to use their name. Now, a guy on the board saw that and came in, and Bob apparently recorded Jesus Christ Superstar for a school production right before doing The Elder. So there you go, a little tangent. Really? And there's there's a private pressing of that uh, recording that's out there somewhere, but very hard to find. Wow. That's awesome. Ryan, did you know that song that Kiss did with the uh, cast of Jesus Christ Superstar? <laughs> no. Uh, feels like heaven on their minds. <laughs> oh, yes. I right, remember that one? 
That's a great one. That's right. I was going to see if you were going to work in Gethsemane or what. <laughs> that would have been a miracle. <laughs> that would have been a little. That would have been a little tougher. <laughs> <sighs> Julian Gill, your thoughts on Under the Rose? I, I take it completely from the point of view that this is an Eric Carr music track. You know that he brought into the sessions and gave to Gene to finish. You know, so that makes it wonderful from that perspective. It's his first real musical you know, expression with Kiss on, you know, on vinyl. So from that perspective, very cool. I always dug this track. I thought it was interesting, stylistically weird. You know, it fits in nicely with the story. So, you know, good song. Gary Schaller, Under the Rose. Uh, it's great. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great part two uh, to Just a Boy. I mean, not Just a Boy. Um, Only You, which quotes Just a Boy. And it's such a seamless transition between these two songs. I, and the guitar solo is uh, phenomenal. It reminds me of uh, Easy As It Seems. Right? I mean, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul. Right? Paul doing uh, fantastic lead guitar work. Now, if we're going to take a weird turn on this album, we're talking about an album full of weird turns. We're going to yank the car off the road and go visit Ace Frehley. Now look- Smith, your thoughts on Dark Light? Um, it was never a huge favorite of mine. I, I like elements of it. I think that the kind of Calypso solo section, it feels a little out of place. Yeah. Uh, I, I, like, I like them as parts, but um, I don't know. I, I, for me, this was always kind of one that was maybe middle tier for me. Mm. Sorry, Ace. You know, you mentioned the congas in this song. Yeah. And there are a few times in history where you just wonder how they did this without Cool Edit Pro. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. right. Because almost, there's, there's... Almost human? Well, no, actually, Then She Kissed Me. Whoever's playing the castanets on Then She Kissed Me should have got paid overtime. Because who's ever playing those castanets... They really had to have eaten their Wheaties because it's just insane. Poor guy just standing there playing the cast net saying, this is my hell, why do I have to do this? <laughs> and, by, by the way, Ken, it's 2016. It's Adobe Audition now. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, the conga thing, I really love Dark Light more for that guitar solo than anything else. But having it play over top of a conga just kind of sounds weird. With that Ricky Ricardo, Babaloo kind of thing going on, it's kind of bizarre. Ryan McKay, your thoughts on Dark Light? Of course, I was dazzled by the guitar solo when I first heard it, and just thinking, Ace Frehley is the greatest guitar player on the yep, planet, you know, and and any other planet, I guess. But 
I guess one of the things that cracks me up, I love Ace Freely to death and his accent, his Brooklyn accent is so great. And in this song, it's hilarious, you know, because he's got to say those, those lyrics, you know, the, the malevolent order, you know, <laughs> so great. How can you not love this? And it's getting darker all the time. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's perfect for me. It's, it's yeah, campy, you know, it works. <laughs> Yeah, but could you imagine if this were actually made into a movie? And you might have Ace show up at this part of the movie, and for the rest of the movie, he's probably not there that much. And you see him walking around in that really cool outfit from The Elder. Man, I wish this would have happened. Brian Cramp, your thoughts on Darklight? I think there's not a song I don't like on this album, but this is definitely one of my least favorites and I think it's Ace Frehley's second worst kiss song you know you can't beat Torpedo Girl but otherwise but I and head in shame <laughs> and I, know I would disagree <laughs> I would definitely edit out the ridiculous percussion on the guitar solo I think it's it's ludicrous <laughs> and I don't but one thing I was gonna say is uh, are you guys familiar with Fraggle Rock yeah um, worse <laughs> oh yeah ever, do you remember the rats by the trash heap? That's, that's, Ace. that's who Ace sounds like on, on this song. And it's getting darker all the time. <laughs> that's fantastic. Written by Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Anton Fig, and Lou Reed? Lou Reed. Lou Reed, that's right. The Lou Reed showing up. You know, Lou Reed wrote Malevolent Order. That was his contribution. Lou Reed wrote Dark Light. I mean, period. That whole The whole thing is just Lou. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Ace had other lyrics that was called Don't Run. Right? Yeah. Oh, so.
Which would have fit in better with the story. I mean, come on. You know, you've got a guy who doesn't want to be a hero, supposedly, uh, you know, someone not sure of himself. Well, how about don't run? Because especially if you're going to later escape from the island, wait, don't run. What, mm-hmm. what the fuck? Fuck's dark light. I mean, come on. I mean, that's like white heat or whatever that. Uh, Jumbo shrimp. That velvet song. This is when I died. <laughs> That's great. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Kachunk, you bastard, you. Uh, you know, when you think about it, if you would have had Lou Reed sing it, it probably wouldn't have sounded all that much different than what Ace did. Uh, just, just, just pitchier, I think. Love is trust, no money down. So it wouldn't have been that different. Trouble yeah. walking on the wild side. <laughs> <laughs> there, there it is. <clears throat> I love this song. I, I, I actually, I really like the congas in the middle. I, it's, it's just, it's just weird enough. And that's Ace, right? I mean, Ace, uh, Ace brings that thing. I mean, you know, I, I, I've said this before, I think, on the show. Like, I really like when Ace does weird left-turn stuff, like Girl Can't Dance, that unreleased track of his. is just so weird, and Dolls is so weird. And um, growing for me, growing up in the Bronx, right, um, you, you know, growing up in the Bronx but being into swords and sorcery and comics and stuff, like, mm-hmm. you don't get that accent in a lot of fantasy movies. Like, there's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. Because, there's a reason, like you watch King Arthur, you know, here, like pull the sword out of the stone, Merle. You know, like, like come on, I think you could do it. You know, like, it pull just it doesn't. Bada bing. Come right. on already. <laughs> Lady of the Lake. Um. So um. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, 
but that's why but that's sort of what's so magical about it it's um uh that's what's fun about it and it uh it uh the opening salvo of the guitar solo there the thing that he does in parasite that you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. jeez louise you know uh, i don't know what kind of um atrophy must set in at some point with your right hand when you do that sort of thing but unbelievable and he's never lost that i mean one could be critical of ace's guitar playing over time how how things have changed and certainly like i hear it but he that that right hand attack has never changed unbelievable look it's the lady of the lake she's wet and she's got a sword right <laughs> and she's got swords yeah right <laughs> Well, okay. Well, there we are. That ends what is side one of Music from the Elder on the vinyl. We want to thank everybody here today for joining us at the Podkiss Diner at the Elder Table. We want to hear what you think about side one of Music from the Elder, this international version. We hope you had a good time today laughing along with us and talking about something that we all love very much kiss music from the elder we'll see you on side two of our discussion of the elder and we hope to see you at the rock and pod expo august 26th it's coming up very soon hope to see you there thank you for listening to your podcast and for being part of this show thank you for your support over the last 10 years see you on part two coming soon see you at the big table and it's getting darker all the time (laughs) exactly and that is our show thanks again for listening be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com you can also find us on facebook and on itunes if you'd like to contact the podcast please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com big thanks to julian and everyone at kissfaq.com they've got great information there and a terrific message board too Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late great Eric Carr, and the late great Mark St. John. You are Kiss, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the Kiss Army for the Kiss Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podkist is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podkist crew, thank you for listening to Podkist, the KISS fanzine for your ears. We are Podcasters United. We are Podcasters Against Hate, Racism, and Discrimination. We're using our voices to say no more, no more hate, no more racism, no more discrimination. This is Gary Schaller from Podkist. I'm against racism. I'm against sexism. I'm against homophobia. I'm against Islamophobia. I'm against hate. I am James Hager from Podkist, and I'm against racism. I'm against discrimination, and I'm against hate of any sort. I am Ken Mills from the Podkist. I am against racism. I am against discrimination. I am against hate. Remember, if you see something, say something. Podcasters Against Hate. More love, less hate.